Awesome. So Paul Wallace is an international best-selling author whose books probe world mythologies and ancestral narratives for their insight into human origin, human potential, and our place in the cosmos. A popular speaker and researcher, his documentaries and collaborations are watched by millions. As a senior churchman, Paul served as a uh, church doctor, a theological educator, and an archdeacon in the Anglican Church in Australia. With numerous titles published on uh, Christian mysticism and spirituality, his books twenty uh, his twenty twenty book Escaping from Eden was hailed by George Norrie as the generation's chariots of the gods, propelling Paul onto an international stage as the go to guy in the field of paleo contact. Paul's latest book, The Scars of Eden, is endorsed by Eric von Doniken. That's what we have here, but there is a lot more to it, but we'll keep it short so we can get Paul. Oh, well, that's what we're going to talk about a little bit is the Echoes of Eden, which I believe is out on Kindle now. And then May 1st will be out on hardcover, which is um, just absolutely incredible. I have uh, had the privilege to read most of it, and it is by far just one of the best works that I've personally read. And, And, you know, being with Paul and talking with Paul so much, I respect Paul's insight so much that it has it has affected me on a personal mm-hmm. level and on a research level. He is just heralding this information that when he, his take on it is just so profound that when you listen or look, and well, of course you listen through YouTube, but when you look and you read it, you tend to get this twist now and you're like, you know what? That makes so much more sense and it connects so many dots for me. And I just, I just love Paul to death. He's, he's a good friend of mine. And, you know, I love working with him all the time, as many times as I can, because Paul is always <laughs> spot on. So welcome brother. You're muted, bro. You're muted, Paul. Good day. Uh, thank you, Rob. I'm blown away by that introduction. It's lovely to be in your presence once again, guys. And uh, I've been uh, listening in It's this morning because I'm speaking from Australia and um, people will think that all the presenters carefully compared notes before hmm. the summit to work out how they'd fit together. That isn't the case at all. And this happens so often that I, th- I think, am I, am I going to approach this from the right angle today? Mm-hmm. And then I listen to my fellow presenters and think, oh, we're all on the same page here. We're all really in a sequence unpacking the same wonderful kaleidoscopic picture. Mm, yeah. And I think and it'll be another of those days. Definitely, brother. And it just synchronistically flows together, you know. Everything fits in the right place where it's, it's got to fit. The theme for this conference is unity consciousness. And I, I particularly like your story because um, you give hope to a lot of people that may have started from a different route or have a different belief system. <laughs> And through evidence and research, really starts uncovering the truth and peeling back the layers of, you know, ancient history. But ultimately, it's really about what this means for who we are, right? About where we came from and what connects us. Because these are stories that unite multiple civilizations across the world, wouldn't you say? Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you've really summarized my journey (laughs) over the last (laughs) half decade by saying that. And I'll unpack a little bit of that in a moment. So let's um let's get into talking about your your upcoming book. Well, actually, why don't you tell everybody? Because we always bring you on, and you always tell everybody a little bit about your story. But I think that on Portal to Ascension, there's always a good amount of people that haven't heard about your journey. So why don't you just spend a few minutes just to kind of summarize how you just got to where you are today and your background before we kind of get into your new material? Sure. Well, people know me today for my work in the field of paleo contact. So that's the theory that our ancestors in the deep past had contact with visitors from other civilizations, other parts of the cosmos. And my route into this territory surprises a lot of people because my background is in Christian ministry. I was 33 years in church-based ministry, working as a church doctor, an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia, as Rob was just saying and a theological educator training pastors, particularly in the area of handling the Bible, interpreting the Bible. The word is called hermeneutics, and it's the principles of interpreting ancient texts. And it was actually the skills I developed in that area as a preacher, as a lecturer, 
that led me down a certain rabbit hole into the great rabbit warren we're all exploring together over the last couple of days. The red pill for me was Bible translation, particularly going to the root meanings of some key words in the Hebrew texts. I'm going to be talking about one in particular, but translation really can hide or open up the world uh, of phenomena reported in the Hebrew canon. And it was as I explored questions of translation that the world of paleocontact began to open up to me. Beautiful. And you, and in that process, you wrote a few books. And um, how many books do you have now? Is it, are, were they, are they three in the series? In my series in paleocontact, Echoes of Eden, the new one, is the third. And as you're saying, it's due out on May the 1st, so you can pre-order the Kindle right now, and then it'll be downloaded on May the 1st. And the paperback you can buy from the 1st of May on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, it'll be everywhere. And those three books are just the latest. I think Echoes of Eden is the 12th book that I've written. But it's these three in particular, the Eden series, that talk about paleo contact and how that uh, relates to the world today mm -hmm. and how you might find your way into exploring that territory from all kinds of different start points. Beautiful. Do you have like a presentation you want to share or should, do you want to just go back and forth or did you have something that you wanted to convey with your book about your, oh, your material? I, always enjoy bouncing off you guys i have something i can share yeah uh, but uh, it's whichever you prefer neil all right so why don't you uh robin let's you have immediate question we can let you share and then we'll just jump on with questions i just want i have a comment and this yeah. is one of the things of of course when we look at the bible what the bible is intended for is interpretation of the story and how it relates to right now and i think this is one of the things that paul captivates so well when he looks at all of these ancient texts and stories he's a, he's able to give you a master class of what it actually meant or what the symbolism is and what it means and every time he does that you end up making connections in other cultures and civilizations and it's absolutely incredible so i just wanted to throw that out there exactly 100 and dr victor um has i guess interviewed you in the past as well so you want to jump on dr richard I've had, the pleasure, I've had the pleasure of meeting Paul and interviewing him a couple of times, and he elucidated for some, something for me with his research and his wisdom, a word that always bothered me in Hebrew, the word Elohim, which is plural. So if there's Elohim, how can there be plural if God is one? And he answered that question for me. Yeah, Thank you. That, was, that was the beginning of the journey for me. And hi, Victor, it's great to see you again. Um, I'll share some thoughts then, and I'll pace it so that we've got time for some conversation to, to bounce off it. Sounds good. And uh, Elohim, yes, was really significant for me. My work has really been oriented around root meanings, going to the root meanings of key words in the ancient texts. And as I say, it's that that's opened up this incredible new world for me. And it's taken me from... My faith was really a fairly traditional, narrow Christian orthodoxy, now to a worldview that embraces paleocontact, human potential, and all the exploration of ascension, such as we've been discussing over the last couple of days. So what I want to share is about four processes of recognition that were part of my journey of reframing and rediscovery four processes of recognition, at least four, but these are a start point. And I want to start by talking about my rediscovery of our invisible team. That's the language I use, our invisible team. Way back in 2009, my wife Ruth and I were effecting a move from the Australian Capital Territory to the New South Wales South Coast. We were moving uh, somewhere we, where we could live more cheaply for a couple of years as our babies were arriving, and we didn't want to both be working full-time as our babies arrived. 
And so we were trading down from a larger house to a smaller house. And um, it was quite a challenging move, but we managed to sell the house without an agent. We were quite pleased with ourselves there. And now we realized that we could sell that house, buy that house, but we were so tight financially that we had covered for everything except the cost of actually moving. We didn't have any money for the removal truck that would get us from Canberra to the South Coast. And it was going to cost about 5,000 um, Australian dollars back in 2009. And we were puzzling over where we were going to get this money from. We really didn't have the capacity to support a loan or a new loan to, uh, to service that need. And we were thinking, oh, dear, do we have to ask your mum and dad for help? And we were getting quite anxious about it. We were much younger then. And I was sitting at my desk, which in those days was in our bedroom, and I was just puzzling over this, how, where can I get $5,000 from? And as I was sitting at my desk, something went like that. It was as if somebody just gently moved my head and then pointed at something at the bottom of my computer screen. I was staring at our bank accounts. And suddenly I realized I was reading the words available funds. What does that mean? Mm -mm. Available funds. And I realized that because we'd been overpaying our mortgage for the last few years, we had available funds we could draw on, just over $5,000. Well, this was quite an exciting experience. And as I processed what had just happened, I'd located the $5,000 we needed. I thought, what? who did that? Who put my attention there? Was that a God experience? And somehow I felt no, that was a more localized entity helping me there. Was that an angel? Now, we were trying to process this through our Christian Orthodox worldview, but if I had shared that story with someone with a different worldview, if I had shared it with um, a guardian or elder of an indigenous tradition, they might very well have told me, ah, your ancestors were helping you. If I talked to a traditional healer from out of Swaziland, or Zambia, or Zimbabwe, or Ghana, they would say, your ancestors were helping you. If I went to certain other cultures, they'd say, ah, oh, the spirits helped you. Well, I came out of that experience a little bit agnostic about where that help had come from. It was very focused help. I just wasn't sure who it was who had helped. And it was just the very beginning in my widening my worldview as to what company do we go through this life in. Traditional healers have their language for it. They talk about ancestral spirits. A traditional shaman will talk about contact with the spirits. And that language is in the New Testament as well, which I hadn't fully spotted at that point. Hebrews 12 in the New Testament talks about each one of us being surrounded by an invisible cloud of ancestral spirits. Our ancestors are very interested in us and our well-being and our progress through life and support us in some kind of a way, according to Hebrews 12. 1 John 4, in the New Testament, the writer tells the believer to expect information to come from entities he describes as spirits, but he doesn't say who they are or what they are. Are these spirits interdimensional entities? Are they energy-based beings? Are they physical beings who communicate telepathically? Are they the spirits of ancestors? Are they your spirits, your higher self? The writer doesn't say, and for him it's not important. As long as you keep your sovereignty, your autonomy, make up your own mind, weigh up what you hear, decide for yourself if you're going to act on it, if all that's in place, then you listen out. You should expect to be getting some good information. And so what I found rediscovering those texts in the light of the world's family of ancestral narratives has opened up a mindset of expecting help, of I put my question or my need to the universe 
and the help can come from anywhere. And I really have come to believe that each one of us has an invisible team of spirits, entities, wishing to support us on our journey through life. I do a lot of personal coaching. And from time to time, I'll say to a client, do you know, I'm coming to believe that every one of us has an invisible team of helpers. I've yet to say that and not hear the person say back, yes, I've come to believe that too. But they haven't got that belief from their religion or their traditional worldview. They've been forming that opinion because of experiences they've been having. It is great to expect help, to believe that there is an invisible team of helpers out there because we are better at experiencing things we expect. And the world's ancestral narratives, including the New Testament, Hebrews and 1 John 4, teach us a high expectation of help. The narrow orthodoxy of Western Christianity, however, has taught a somewhat different view. And those teachings in Hebrews and 1 John have not been part of the core curriculum of Christianity for the last 2000 years. As Victor mentioned just now, my journey of rapid relearning began in Bible translation and in going to the word Elohim. It's the oldest word in the Bible that gets translated as God. But as I did my research around the word, I realized it couldn't mean that. The word is a plural masculine form word. It takes plural verbs, plural attributives, and so in my book, Escaping from Eden, I asked the question, what happens to the Elohim stories of the Bible if we retranslate that word according to its root meanings? According to its roots, it means the powerful ones. And I give a close argument for that in Escaping from Eden. If we reread the stories of the powerful ones, then it repositions the Bible in the world of ancestral narratives and world mythology. When we translate that word as God, and that was a choice made in the 6th century BCE by the editors and redactors of the Bible at that point. What I've just said is completely uncontroversial. Anyone with a theology degree knows that. And so this book that was a compendium of stories was turned into a single book about God. And within that were the Elohim stories, the stories of the powerful ones. So what you have in the Elohim stories, when you read it as the stories of the powerful ones, it's like a light bulb comes on and you realize you're looking at a whole plethora of entities, a whole range, a diverse range of powerful ones who were present on planet Earth in the deep past, and we're listening to our ancestors' recollections of what it was like when they were around, of what it was like when they were governing the human populations on planet Earth. Some of these powerful ones were not very sweet and divine and heavenly-like at all. They were sometimes quite brutal, selfish. They were oftentimes in conflict and at war. They would slaughter thousands of human beings in the arguments among themselves. And at times, these Elohim were quite unpredictable. And even people trying to serve the Elohim would find themselves slaughtered in great number because they're displeased, their particular powerful one. These are stories of colonization. All colonization is brutal and is violent and is done by force, and the colonization described in the Hebrew canon is no different. But we have a big problem. When we translate that warring, unpredictable, vicious, punitive behavior as the behavior of God, because we translated Elohim as God, suddenly you've got an unpredictable, violent, abusive monster of a God. And those were the translation choices made in the 6th century BCE because those redactors wanted to teach monotheism, the idea that there's only one God and source of all, which is a very noble and important truth. But by trying to airbrush that theology over these earlier stories, 
they ended up with a vision of God that is totally mixed up and that makes God out to be a monster. That's bad enough. But when you then have to worship the monster, it does something to your conscience. If you have to worship the monster, then you have to sublimate all your instincts about what is loving and not loving, what is kind and not kind, what is good and what is not good. You have to totally distort your own moral compass to worship a monster. And this is what we've done. You can draw a straight line from those translation choices to all kinds of violent colonization, uh, genocides, enslavement of people groups, all justified in the name of this monstrous God. It's done a great deal of damage to our psychology, but more than distort us morally, it has eviscerated our self-confidence as a species to the extent that we've brought into this worldview of a monstrous God. Having a God who's unpredictable and violent, who can turn on a dime and kill you and torment your family for seven generations because of some mistake you've made, I liken it to living in a household where you have a parent who may be for reasons of mental health or substance abuse or addictions. They are a very unpredictable and potentially dangerous parent. Everyone in that household has to tiptoe around them for fear of finding them in a bad mood, for fear of setting them off, tiptoe around them so that the disordered powerful one can remain comfortable. And the importance of everyone else in the family goes to zero. And a child brought up in that environment is very challenging. Very often the self-esteem and self-confidence of the spouse or the child just goes to zero, just goes to mush because of those dynamics. We've done that to ourselves as a species by believing we're in a universe with a God like that, tiptoeing around for fear of offending. And we have justified that behavior with the language of worship and obedience. This is how we tiptoe and fail to offend through worship and obedience. But the moment you do the translation work that I suggest, that abusive God disappears. You realize that's a total distortion of reality. And once you've gotten rid of your abusive God, you can begin to recover a sense of self-love and self-confidence, as Shireya was just talking about. But, you know, there are actual monsters in the Hebrew text. And again, a little bit of translation work gets you to that realization. There are dragons in there, and there are dragons in world mythology and ancestral narrative all around the world. You can find in Egypt the Akek. In other parts of the world, you'll find Kukumats, Kukulkan, Quetzalcoatl in Mesoamerica, the Colchis from out of Georgia, the Coca from Spain and Portugal, the Cuchedra, the Kur from Greece, the Kurukami or the Kuchiro or Ikuchi from out of Japan. Now, did you spot something about the phonetics of those names? That's the sound that recurs in dragon narratives all around the world. And it makes me ask, have our ancestors curated stories which carry the memory of a sound or even of a proper name that began that belonged to these dragon entities <coughs> now that might sound like a million miles away from the yahweh stories of the hebrew scriptures but in my new book echoes of eden out on may the 1st I take the reader through the story of Africation in the development of languages. Now, Africation is the process by which hard plosives become softer fricatives over time. And so in a language, you might start with a p sound and it'll go to a p and then a f. You might start with a b sound and it goes to a v and then a v. 
you might start with a v sound and it goes to a v and then a w. Start with a t, goes to a s, goes to a s. This process of sound softening is called affrication. And the same has happened to the H in Hebrew. In the name Yahweh, the H is so silent, it's only there really to help the sounding of the vowels. But in ancient Proto Semitic, <sighs> sounded like. Does that sound familiar? Suddenly we realize there is an overlap of the <laughs> of the Hebrew stories with the <laughs> of narratives all around the world. And there are dragon stories with that name pasted over the top in the Hebrew scriptures. This is just one example of how the Bible realigns when you do some translation work, because translated the way it is, it sets itself over and against all the other ancestral narratives of the world. Through my translation work, I realize it sits among them. Now, the dragon story doesn't end with the presence of the dragon. The dragon stories often follow a certain shape, that in the deep past, our ancestors were governed over by draconian entities whom they served, and they had to provide them with a lot of cattle, and a lot of gold, and a lot of virgin girls, because that's what dragons want. Those three things, cultures all around the world recall that. And this is how life was. We served superiors who were like that for a long time. And then the people reached the point of exhaustion. And they sit down with each other, and they think it through. And they say, what would happen if we all came together if we acted in solidarity, if we all together said, no, we're not going to serve you anymore. The dragon can't kill all of us because this was its habit. Fiery breath would consume them. And that's true of the Yahweh stories that are in the Hebrew scriptures too. Can't kill all of us because then he's got no servants. So what's he going to do? Might kill some of us. But if we all act together and just say no, then we've ended the dragon's power. And sure enough, that's how the story goes. There's a point in the Hebrew stories in which the people come together and say, no, no more. We want a human king and we're going to look after ourselves without the draconian entity. Thank you very much. That's the story. But that hard wiring of we exist to serve superiors, hard to get rid of. And that's why people like Buddha, Lao Tzu and Jesus did a great deal in their teaching to try and unravel that hard wiring of deference and civility, to reframe the idea of loving God as we love each other, to reframe we serve God as we serve one another. And that insight is there in the Hebrew scriptures too, as you listen to some of the later prophets. And so we rediscover in the dragon stories each other. We rediscover our own power when we act collectively. And that is part of the meaning of the dragon stories. We rediscover one another as our opportunity to find divine connection, power, and meaning. We rediscover our own power and each other's value. And the dragon stories are told to encourage us to carry on learning those truths because they remain relevant. In 1993, Mother Teresa visited Great Britain and Mother Teresa was known for working among the untouchables of Calcutta. The untouchables are the class of people, uh, uh, according to the caste system that you find in India, who are people of no value, people who you don't want to associate with, you don't look at them, you certainly don't touch them, hence the name, and they are at the bottom of the pile. And it was among those people who are often very poor that Mother Teresa worked. Then she visited Great Britain, and she said she was shocked at the collapse of self-esteem among the teenagers of Great Britain. Now, when I heard that, I was blown away. How can the self-esteem of teenagers in wealthy Great Britain be lower than the self-esteem of untouchables in Calcutta? The answer appears to be that when all 
the important relationships in your life are broken down, when extended family is broken down, when the nuclear family is broken down, when your civic family is broken down, your self-esteem will go to mush. And unfortunately, in a worldview shaped by that narrow Christian orthodoxy that I mentioned earlier, when you're on your own, you're on your own. You might beg the Almighty for help, but because of the Almighty's mysterious ways, help might not come. And then where do you go? When you're on your own, you're on your own. Whereas, as I've begun listening to the ancestral wisdom of our elders around the world, our shamanic leaders, go back to the texts of Christianity that were neglected, like Hebrews uh, 12 and 1 John 4, I'm listening to a worldview that says every one of us has invisible team. And in that worldview, even when all those things are shot to pieces, you look for help from the universe and you expect help to come from somewhere, whether it's from your higher self uh, or from animals, plants, spirits, children, strangers. You put out your need or your question to the cosmos and help will come from somewhere. And it may even come from an invisible team. And that is a far more empowering worldview with which to journey through life. The idea that you are important enough to warrant a personal invisible support team is life-changing. The other recognition that happened for me through this translation work was the recognition of other cultures. Because once I made those translation shifts, I realized that the ancient stories of the Bible were actually reaffirming ancestral narratives from other cultures. It wasn't the Bible over and against everybody else. When we translate Elohim as God, it's as if the Bible says, forget what everybody else says, this is what really happened. Make the translation switch, and what the Bible says actually lines up with other ancestral narratives, and it changes your relationship, therefore, with other cultures. Suddenly, you respect other cultures in a brand new way and expect to be hearing valuable information from them. In the past, when I was in the world of narrow orthodoxy, if somebody said something like, well, we can all learn something from each other, can't we? Mm. Mm. Calvinistic Christianity says, no, no, you can't, because we have the truth. You might have bits and pieces, but we have the truth. And as I did the translation work, I realized that's unwarrantable. That's completely unsupported once we set these biblical stories in their wider context. And I began to recognize the dignity and value of other cultures. I began to recognize that a missionary relationship where you are the one who has all the truth, that's not the right kind of relationship. And my confidence in that missionary relationship was really rooted in more, um, how can I put it, uglier patterns, patterns of colonization, uh, traditions of racial supremacy, one over the other, uh, patterns of disrespect, suppression, and genocide of indigenous narratives. That was the tradition I was a part of growing up in Great Britain. And I had to begin unpiecing that and realizing, no, that is not the way we live on this planet. It is not supported by the ancient texts. We are all on a journey of exploration and learning from one another. Echoes of Eden looks at something of the process by which we've been taught to disbelieve and disregard the indigenous stories of other cultures, but also of our own culture, that if our own ancestors have something different to say than our narrow orthodoxy, then we dismiss it with the language of idolatry and witchcraft. And it's how the British marginalized the thinking of the local people whenever they colonized new territory. It's why in the USA, in Canada and Australia, there was a hundred years of stolen generation policies of kidnapping children, uh, 10,000 of them so far, uh, 
have been recorded as murders in the children's homes and boarding schools of Canada. We now have a truth and reconciliation process happening there. And it's not unique to Canada. It's part of how the old stories have been silenced throughout history. If we go to medieval France, go to the Languedoc, you're in a part of Europe where a million people were killed by 19 successive popes in order to rid the world of the indigenous information they had carried and run with. And the information they had had translated into a better society in the south of France, in the Languedoc. And a big part of their information was to do with the recognition of our higher self. And they had got that from Plato, who was a teacher of paleocontact, as I am. And they had developed a lot of his thinking. The idea of our higher selves is the idea that we are primarily conscious beings, that we exist as an aspect of cosmic consciousness before we incarnate as individual material beings. Then we have this material experience, and then after this, we go on. Our consciousness goes on, on its learning journey, or it returns to the source. Now, by that worldview, when we were aspects of cosmic consciousness, we knew everything. And therefore, everything we learn in this life is really the recovery of information we had before. And the Cathars were people who wanted to tap that connection, who believed that we could access the knowledge we had before and live in the light of it. I returned to those teachings which had been hereticized by the church in times past and began recognizing the insight they had to offer. When I was in the world of narrow orthodoxy, I believed in a thing called the word of knowledge, which is where God gives the Christian worker a little bit of information to help in a ministry task. And I began having experiences that blew that paradigm out of the water. I started having experiences of remote viewing and future viewing that had nothing to do with ministry. And I began to suspect were to do with the activation of a part of my brain. And that's really what the Cathars were on about, reconnecting with our higher selves, downloading information from the cosmic field of information through our bodies and brains functioning better. When we go to the paleocontact stories from the Mayan tradition, the idea of higher human cognitive abilities is totally enmeshed in that story of paleocontact. It says our ancestors had these higher cognitive abilities of self-healing, telepathic connection, future viewing, remote viewing, and that we all still have it in our brains. The Nigerian story of Abasi and Atai say the same thing. Our ancestors had these higher abilities, and then the powerful ones, we're back to the Elohim, release devices into the environment, or in the Popol Vuh, it's a vapor sprayed into the environment to brain damage the human beings, to bring us down to the point where our world is limited to the immediate realm of our five physical senses. For any other information, we have to rely on an authority to tell us. The powerful ones felt they could work with that. There's a positive take-home from that, and that is that when the powerful ones wanted to dial us down, they didn't do it by modifying our DNA. They did it by putting something into the environment. And that means that all those higher abilities are still latent in our minds, in our brains, in our bodies, waiting to be reactivated. And a lot of people began, begin exploring ascension because they start experiencing flashes of these higher faculties switching on. And those stories from the Popol Vuh and from Nigeria suggest that if we pay attention to our environment, to making sure that it's not toxic, that it is clean, that our water is clean, that our food is clean, that we're living in harmony with our environment, then we should fully expect our higher faculties to begin switching back on. And so there was for me a recognition of the importance of our environment, the environment of my home, our natural environment and to place value on it, to seek to be in harmony with it, to be in gratitude towards it, and to learn how to live as a part 
of the environment rather than over and against it. And so this recognition of our higher selves is a shift from a paradigm of dependence to a paradigm of empowerment. I talked about narrow orthodoxy. In the beginning, Christianity wasn't that. It was a kaleidoscope of experiences and theologies. Within that kaleidoscope were a kaleidoscope of texts. And a lot of those got excluded as Christianity became more defined and got hijacked by the empire. One of the texts that was excluded was the Gospel of Thomas, one of the Gnostic texts. Now, not all Gnostic texts should be treated with equal reverence necessarily. Some are earlier than others. Some are more primitive than others. But scholars generally agree that the Gospel of Thomas is very early, and it may even be the earliest attestation to Jesus's teaching. So that deserves a lot of reverence. And when we go to it, it begins with the words, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Well, how much more empowering a worldview that offers. We could translate it differently if we go to the root meanings. We could say that the whole cosmic realm, its powers and principles operate within you. That would be a truth curated by traditions all around the world. It's there in the Gospel of Thomas. It's there in the canonical Gospels as well. But translation, once again, has obscured it. Jesus' very first sermon, I believe you could translate perfectly accurately like this. Go beyond the mind, because the powers and principles and people of the cosmos are available to you waiting to be embraced. I think that is a true and accurate translation of the text and one that invites us to explore, takes us from this world where we are dependent, uh, in craven obedience, uh, seeking permission for everything, begging for assistance, to one where we fully expect it because we have the universe here to support us. It moves us from a world where we're tiptoeing around to boldly going. It moves us from a world where trespassers will be prosecuted to a world where we can explore and discover what's possible. And I'll conclude there and hand back to you, Neil. Amazing, brother. Whoa. Ooh, man, I'll tell Mind you. Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> but there's so many. We only have a few minutes left. But I went robbed. You I'm, know, I'm you sorry that. about that. I went a bit longer than I No, no, you're good. I mean... I, I think I want to listen to this again, write the questions down and do an interview on our YouTube about the questions that I have, you know, so we can go deeper. But Rob, I'll give you the first opportunity here because I want to ask a couple before we close out. I just have a comment and then I'll let you do the questions. That was powerful. And, and the, uh, the sounds of the words, it, it's just, it's so empowering. And, you know, I, I agree with you a hundred percent that we have a team around us. I've had dreams of loved ones that have passed and it was so real and tangible that, I woke up still in the embrace of one of them. So, you know, I'll just leave it right there, Paul. I love your work. And that was just bar none incredible. I resonated with it on so many different levels. And you've inspired me to do comparative mythology and really look into things. Mm -hmm. I just wrote my first article on Substack, which was comparative mythology with Ayana, the uh, Sumerian goddess. So it was, uh, it was incredible, incredible. Oh, thanks, Rob. All right, so let's let's get into a few questions here. Well, firstly, what you said about the um, shifting our environment, you know, and the external environment, not it's not really like a tampering with our DNA, but our DNA has, has full potential, right? And it's it's interesting because comparative mythology. I just took a, a course on comparative Greek and Indian mythology, which I'm doing the Yuga cycles across both cultures, and in each Yuga cycle, the age of humanity doubles, right? And we've just come out of this Kali Yuga cycle. We're going to this Dwarpa Yuga. So technically we can live up to 200, but what we need to do is shift our environment, you know, uh, fluoride, all the stuff that we have in our external environment to do that. But the interesting thing is, it goes back to what a lot of speakers have been speaking about, is that the only way we can even do that is by shifting our consciousness to even know that, that we have to do that, you know? So we have to do that inner work before we do that. So that's just my, my quick comment there. But the question, first one I have is, when you talk about dragons, because we had some people in the chat saying, well, dragons are good. Some people saying, well, my experience with dragons are this. Do you think it's literal dragons or could it be metaphors? Because the dragon race 
I've been told that it's been here before the humans even came to our galaxy and were very wise races. Did they use the dragon symbolism to symbolize their grandioseness or what do you think it is? Well, there are texts in the Hebrew scriptures that suggest dragons really exactly as a child would picture them, uh, a reptilian entity that destroys things by fire. Some of those recollections, I think, might be recollections of technology, but some of them are recollections of biological entities. But I think it's quite complex that just because an entity is described as a reptilian doesn't necessarily mean you're getting a dark story or a story of evil, mm -hmm. because there are reptilian entities in the mix who do positive things for humanity. And the upgrade uh, of humanity from a, uh, a slave species to something better than that, something more empowered, more conscious, more intelligent, uh, a lot of um, cultures, including the, the story from the Popol Vuh and the root meaning of Genesis 3, give credit to a reptilian entity for doing that. So it's not dragons bad, mammals good. Uh, it's a more layered picture than that. And then you're right, Neil, I think there are even older experiences on planet Earth that relate to reptilian entities that are separate mm -hmm. to the memories our ancestors have carried in these uh, dragon stories where we conquer them. Right, right. You know, and there's been a few channelings that I've listened to and um, some people that channel reptilian beings and they say that there's the reptilians that have the negative connotation and then the ones that are the positive ones like to be called serpentine beings because there's the polarity yes. of the two, you know? Well, you, yeah, you can use the two words that way. And I certainly think there's a spectrum in the Bible. Serpent refers to the, all of them. Mm, okay. Okay. But you just have to look at the behavior. Is it good behavior? Is it bad behavior? Right, Is it right. helpful? Is it unhelpful? And just follow right. the stories. And then if you, another speaker spoke about this, if you expand out to the overall picture, even that the dark ones are working for our evolution because ultimately it kickstarted a process that led us to this moment, you know, of us. Well, yeah, that's right. Even though the, the horrible stories of, um, you know, gold virgins and cattle and we exist to provide all that to the dragons, that story right. goes somewhere. It goes to a pivot point where the human race grows up and discovers what we're capable of when we act collectively when we become civilized right. and we uh, we begin to serve one another instead of serving superiors i mean that is a perennially important lesson isn't it definitely all right so last question here how do you reconcile the following okay so elohim right um some people have said that they're a group of different et races some say they're just a group um gods from certain planet right um then we have anunnaki right so is that how would you reconcile Elohim as a group of beings or races, the word Anunnaki and Yahweh, which, you know, was the one God chosen out of the many? Well, the word Elohim, um, meaning powerful one, seems to embrace a diversity of beings in, in the Hebrew texts. Very often those stories run in parallel with the Anunnaki stories from uh, the Mesopotamian literature. Uh, the Anunnaki, that means sky people, it means astronauts, some people would argue. It doesn't say what they are, just that they've come from the sky. So again, that can imply a whole spectrum of entities. And in both those canons, the Mesopotamian and the biblical, there is a reference made to the sky council, in which you've got a diversity of agendas, and right. very clear in the Bible, a diversity of species all operating in some kind of a, a federation, to use Hay and Meshed's language. Mm. So it could be multiple races, right? Uh, yeah, I believe it is. And even some races, like let's talk about Orion, for example, where there were, um, you know, there was some sort of infiltration there. Um, a lot of these races eventually figured out how to transcend the struggles and strife, and at this moment could actually be harmonious or peaceful, right? Well, that's right. I mean, there are layers to the stories of our visitors. Uh, Orion is one region of space that recurs all around the world. The Pleiades is another. Sirius is another. Go to the Book of Enoch, and there's a hint there 
at entities that can operate as energy-based or as material or interdimensional. And so, yes, our neighbours are, are on a journey too. Some of our neighbours are on a journey of ascension similar to ours, mm. and some of them I'm not so sure. Yeah. I mean, look at the human experience of a couple thousand years ago, you know, definitely we were um, much more warlike, actually, maybe that even kind of, that's open to interpretation, right? But we definitely had a lot of chaos in our past that different races wouldn't want to interact with us. And we're on this process of evolution to be in unity consciousness. And that's the end goal. So we would have even shifted out of it within, you know, our human experience. We do, we are still very warlike, but I, agree with you, Neil, I actually think we are progressing as a species in terms of how we embrace compassion, mm -hmm. whether we can extend compassion to, you know, the next town, the next tribe, the next country, even an enemy empire. I think that's the direction that we are moving in. I think that's the lesson yeah. that we're hopefully learning, albeit um, with a few pitfalls along the way. Definitely. Paul, you're so amazing, brother. Every time I talk to you, I just get so excited. <laughs> it's like, these are my favorite conversations, you know? So thank you for everything you do, man, and being such a great friend, always showing up and just providing so much insight with everything that you, you curate. Appreciate you, oh, brother. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for hosting this, and thank you for having me. Take care, brother. We'll speak soon. Amazing. Right. Amazing.